take inventory on our lives and it's it, it reevaluate some things and and maybe even make some some fresh start but some fresh starts but this is also a day that we have set aside to uh, to observe the Lord's Supper as a church family and it just so happens that the Lord's Supper is also a, a really great time to take inventory on our lives and to reevaluate some things and to maybe even get a fresh start in some areas of our lives. So, so for those reasons, I think this is just the, the, the perfect day for us to, to partake of the Lord's Supper together as a church family as we kick off the new year. And, and, and this, this supper that, that we're partaking of this morning, it's, man, it, it is a, a supper that is extremely important to our Lord. It, so much so, in fact, that, it, that I'm not going to attempt to describe the degree to which it has significance and importance. Instead, I'm going to let the Lord convey it in his own words. And, and these words that I'm about to share with you, these, these are words that Jesus spoke to his original disciples the night before he laid his life down as a sacrifice for each and every one of us. And, and, and it's at this moment that when he actually instituted the supper that we're going to be partaking of this morning. I'm not sure if all of you realize that. And, and just to give you the setting, Jesus has told his disciples where to meet him. And, and they, they, were, they were meeting together so that they could celebrate the Passover together. And, and it's the Passover meal that Jesus is about to reconfigure into his own supper. Because within 12 hours or so, he will become the fulfillment of the Passover lamb of the Old Testament by becoming the true Passover lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. So now that he's the fulfillment of the Passover lamb of the Old Testament, he's reconfiguring the Passover meal into his own supper, what we know as the Lord's Supper. And I want you to realize that as he gathers together with his disciples for this supper, that, that this is actually the, the culmination of three and a half years of our Lord spending time with them, teaching them, equipping them, investing in them, and most importantly, loving them. And I think it's very important for us to note that, that as John reflected on what happened in that room that night, that was the one thing that stood out to him the most. The, the love that Jesus had for them. The love that Jesus had for him. In, in John chapter 13, in verse 1, John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And listen, as we seek to enter that room with our Lord this morning, I hope that the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that was so apparent to John on that night will be that apparent to us this morning. 
I want you to look with me at how Jesus actually expressed his love in those final hours just before what John calls the end. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 15, it says that in the upper room that night, Jesus said to his disciples, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The disciples, they're, they're, not, they're not grasping this, but Jesus is basically saying, this is the last night before my death, and I can't think of anyone else I'd rather spend it with than you 12. And man, have I been looking forward to it. Jesus says, with, with desire, I, I have desired it. And, and by saying that, Jesus is expressing great, great passion or great longing, even, even craving. But listen, that's how desirous and passionate Jesus is about partaking of this supper with us this morning. He takes it very seriously. He, he passionately desires to have a time of communing and fellowshipping with us as we reflect and, and we remember who Jesus was and we remember and we reflect upon what Jesus did for us. He, he wants us to be brought back to the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. God desires to have that time with us this morning and, and, it, and it's something he's passionate about. It, it's something he takes very seriously. And because he takes it so seriously, and because he's designed this time to be so special, the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper is not something to be taken lightly. We should take it as serious as God takes it. And it's extremely important that we do that this morning because of the warning that we receive in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 27 Here's, here, here's Paul talking about the Lord's Supper, and, and here's the warning that he gives us that we all need to take heed to. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Listen, this, this isn't just some sort of tradition. It, it isn't anything that the Lord takes lightly in all aspects of life, y'all. The things that God designed to be the most beautiful get the ugliest when you mess them up. And so when we mess up what God designed this to be, such a rich time of, of intimacy and such a rich time of fellowship, the other side of the coin are the consequences that we just read. So if we eat of the bread and we drink of, of the cup unworthily, it says then we eat and drink damnation to ourselves. Not, not, not damnation to hell, but, but we eat and drink judgment to ourselves. 
to the point where we could get weak, sick, or die. I, I know that that's heavy, but that's how serious God takes this time that we're about to have with him. So, so, so what do we do about that? So what do we do so that we don't approach the Lord's Supper unworthily, as the passage says? And, and the answer is actually in this exact same passage. Verse 28 says, we examine ourselves. And verse 31 says, we judge ourselves. So we examine ourselves and we, and we see if there's any sin in there and we judge it. And we own that sin and we disown that sin. And we do like 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 says. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You see, the answer here isn't to just not take the cup. Okay, Not taking the bread and cup beats the alternative this morning. Okay, But the answer is, examining ourselves, then repenting and cleansing ourselves from sin and turning from it. Let this be the day that all that junk is dealt with in your life and you're, you're freed from that bondage. We just sang about freedom. You're freed from that bondage, which is what sin actually is. Those, those things that you've been holding on to. You know, those things that give you that temporary pleasure but leave you with long-term regret and guilt and consequences. Let today be the day that you deal with that. I have no doubt that there are different sins and different type of sins that might be popping up in your mind right now that maybe you haven't dealt with yet. Maybe it's some sort of habitual sin that you're involved in that's 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 popping into your mind that you've continued to struggle with uh if that's you what what i'm asking you to do is would you just come before god this morning and and own those things and disown those things i'm going to give us some time right now and the intention is for us to do just that I want us to to ask us if we could bow our heads. Wendy, would you come up and play as we do? Would you would you would you bow your heads with me this morning and and let's do as the scripture says. Let's let's take a let's take a couple minutes and and do as the scripture says and examine ourselves. May may we may we examine ourselves. And, and, and reflect on our lives and may we judge ourselves and may we just deal with whatever it is that God is revealing to us so that we can approach this table worthily this morning and so that we can commune and fellowship with our Savior and, and let's enter this time of communion with the Lord with, with joy so that it can be all that He intended it to be. Would you spend the next few minutes examining yourself? You can have a seat. And, I, and I've asked Josh if he would share with us this morning about the symbolism 
of the bread. So Josh, if you would go ahead and come on up and, and share with us what God gave you this morning. All right. Um, I just want to start by thanking our pastor for the opportunity to come speak. Guys, it's, um, it's an extremely humbling thing and an important thing, and I want to echo the seriousness of what he said. Um, it, I never understood that until I had the privilege to be at this church. So um, we're going to launch out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a verse that you guys have probably already seen in that passage. is going to be a little bit more like a sword drill for some of you who aren't used to having a lot of scripture on the screen. Um, so I will try not to go so fast that you're not able to get that, guys. But I'd encourage you to please check the scripture, check the references. Don't take anything that I've said for granted. Um, allow God's word to define itself. If there's anybody here that this is sort of a new thing or you've never really fully understand what this is, I want to encourage you that you're in good company. Because as the disciples sat at that Last Supper, the disciples immediately go afterward and try to talk about who's the greatest. And then immediately after that, they're talking about the places and the things that they're going to get when they're going to rule and reign with Christ. Because they had this belief that they were going to walk into Jerusalem as they're there and he was going to set up his kingdom at that time. But thankfully, that's not what God had planned at that moment in time. So I, I pray that through this service, if you don't have an understanding of it, that God would illuminate that for you through his word. Um, so we'll go ahead and start by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. As I begin to read and I begin to study and I try to think, if I were in the disciples' shoes, the first question that I would begin to ask would be, why? Why does this body need to be broken? What is wrong with this system that we are continuously doing? It, then immediately we go to Romans 5.12. It says, For whereby is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So when we were in Genesis chapter 3, and Adam and Eve were in the garden, everything was perfect. They walked with God, they talked with God in a way that we will never get to experience until we get to heaven. But when even Adam took and they ate, that spiritual death caused a literal separation from God. So at that point in time, they never got to walk with him in person, they never got to speak with him in person. It would never be the same. The presence of God would come and go. But it also caused God to do something that was very different. And a lot of times this is missed in your Bible. It causes God to make the first sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, after the sin has happened, Adam and Eve have realized that they're naked. God comes in Genesis three twenty-one, and it says, Unto Adam also and his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and he clothed them. So for the first time in Scripture, there was a death and a covering of sin. For the remainder of Scripture, until we get to the time that Christ is physically on the earth, we have this system of sacrifice and covering. Sacrifice and covering. So anytime you mess up, you have to go, you've got to get your sin covered. And it was a continual process, guys. 
So when he comes and he says, this is my body which is broken for you, it implies that he's saying that there's something different that's about to happen. So then the other question I begin to think of, one of the greatest examples of Christ in our Bible, there's a man named Abraham who takes his son Isaac up to a mountain. And he's about to go sacrifice him, and God stops him. And he stops him for a very specific purpose. We want to talk about the obedience and the faith that Abraham had, which is important. But Abraham couldn't have sacrificed Isaac there because there was something different about that sacrifice. There was something different about the sacrifice the priests made every year. There was something different when you brought that lamb. And before we can really understand that, I want to sort of break down these literal keys to why as Jesus approaches the cross, this was a little bit different. Why this wasn't your ordinary sacrifice. First off, we know that he was the son of man. Whether that's a distinct thing in your head, let me bring a little worldly interpretation for you as well. Jesus literally had the legal authority to walk into Jerusalem and sit on the throne. Through marriage, he could have avoided Jeconiah's curse because he wasn't a literal relative. But through Mary, he was legally related. So he could have literally came on and sat on that throne in Jerusalem, and he could have been king and had all the glory of man. But we also know, according to Scripture, according to Isaiah 7.14, that is a godly perspective. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. So that, that physical heritage was important. But God shows you the real seed that matters in Genesis 3.15. As he's talking after everything's happened with Satan, he says, Enmity will be between thy seed and her seed. We've spent a lot of time as this church has met together and we've talked about the importance of her seed. Obviously, that's not a normal thing to happen because the seed generally comes from the man. And so if God wanted there to be an importance on that physical lineage of Christ, he would have brought that out. He wanted to adjust us to something that's a little bit more peculiar, something that's not able to be replicated by anybody else. And if that wasn't enough, in Mark fourteen sixty two, it literally says, Bible defining itself, you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. We're not talking about the Son of Man sitting on a throne that he had a right to sit on. We're talking about the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. That's sort of a godly thing. That's not something that, as Andrew and James ask later, they find out can be given. So you find out that he was a literal man, that something was different about within his life. But he also was God. Because if he was just man, he would have been very much like Isaac, other than the fact that he fulfilled some prophecy. According to John 1.14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Luke 3.22 says, And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we could go through a multitude of different verses of Scripture, guys, where it proves the fact that he was the Son of God. But in and of itself, there's something that's really distinct and something really important. We've, we're blessed to have a lot of time throughout the book of Leviticus in this church and really to see the importance of the different sacrifices and how there couldn't be anything physically wrong with those sacrifices. 
So Exodus 12, 5 says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Hebrews 4.15 states about Christ, but he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In the second part of 1 Peter 1.19, talking about Christ, it says he was a lamb without blemish. If we stopped right there, I think the Bible's distinctly defined it enough, but I think Paul more eloquently illustrated in my life this week as I was studying, as I was reading Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, he comes to a challenge to the church where he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice. So up to this point in time, every sacrifice that had been made, whether it be a lamb, whether it be a dove, everything was in compliance with the law that God had set. But these sacrifices were dead. If he would have sacrificed Isaac, Isaac wasn't alive in a spiritual standpoint. But when Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, literally came down and chose to allow himself to die, for the first time, we were literally given a living sacrifice that was perfect, that was holy, and that would not simply cover your sin for a year. Not cover it until the next time. But this sacrifice of his body would cover it forever. That body that went through the physical scourging. The body that became every sin imaginable. It was also a willing sacrifice, guys. When you would take that lamb that we would talk about how it's dumb to the slaughter, you catch the dove, all those were things that they went and they got. They didn't really know what was going on. But Jesus himself knew everything that went on. So, so ending this and going there, he ends the verse and says, Do this in remembrance of me, guys. It's a big deal throughout our Bible when they talk about memorials and different things that happen because he wants it to be repeated. He doesn't want it to be forgotten what goes through. He wants it to be passed down. He doesn't want us to ever forget what he's literally did for us on the cross. Has anyone been overlooked? All right. Let's commune with the Lord this morning as, as we remember who Jesus was. He, Jesus loved us so much that he humbled himself and he came to this planet as God in human flesh. He lived a perfect sinless life and as paul is teaching us about the lord's supper in first corinthians 11 here's what he says starting in verse 23 for i have received of the lord that which also i delivered unto you that the lord jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks and i want us to stop right there i'd like to ask cody to stand and give thanks for the symbol of the bread. Father, we thank you for letting us be in your house this morning, the service that happened and what it means. We thank you, Lord, for the bread, the fact that it represents Jesus on the cross for us. We bring that in remembrance. We do that in remembrance to you this morning. We ask that you would just help 
just remember everybody that was affected. Mm -hmm. Amen. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he break it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And now I've asked CJ if he'd come up and be willing to share with us the symbolism and the significance of the cup. So CJ, if you would come up and share with us what the Lord has given you. To 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, just the next verse, uh, and then we're going to talk about the blood. If I can scroll there as well and flip in a Bible. Verse 25 says, After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So, as we break down the blood, which, of course, we hear many of times in this body, you're going to hear about the blood all the time. We've sung about it a lot today. Let's just stay within the verse. Let's not even go away to any verse just yet. Let's try and find out what God is saying to us in this verse about the blood and what his key points are. So he's got three key points in which he is focusing on in verse 25. He says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. So he has, number one, this cup, number two, the New Testament, and number three, his blood, and that's what we're going to focus on. So the first one, of course, being the cup, and as the bread represented the body of Christ, which was broken for us, as it says in verse 24, in verse 25, this cup is the New Testament in his blood, and it represents the blood of Christ, which was shed for us. So I'm going to hit a little bit on the, on the cup, and once I get done wrapping everything up, I'm going to come back to the cup, but... The cup ties in with the cup of salvation in chapter 116 of, of Psalms, verse 13. It talks about the cup of his salvation and calling upon the name of the Lord. But we need to know that in taking of this cup, which is of course symbolic of his blood, that as he says in the verse, we are remembering him, his sacrifice, and his blood. But we need to ask specifically, what are we remembering about his blood? Just that it was shed, or maybe more? What entirety of the role does the blood of Christ play? Does it play? Is it just that it was shed on a cross, or is there a lot more going on with the blood that a lot of the stuff that is in this New Testament that God has given us and a lot of the stuff we have access to is not even possible without the shedding of that blood? So we're told here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, that this cup is the New Testament and transitioning from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You have a weaker Old Testament, and a lot of what Josh said really ties in with what, where I'm going as well, is that Old Testament was weak. It didn't have full power to eternally redeem you, as, you're, as we're about to figure out. And that New Testament, which is the blood of Christ, it's the only thing that is strong enough to give you everything that he has given us. The Old Testament doesn't do that. The New Testament does, which is his blood. So second point, which is where, where we're going to focus on, which is the Testaments. So, of course, as I already said, to realize the entirety of the role God uses his son's blood, we have to compare Christ and his blood, which is the New Testament, to the Old Testament. You go to Hebrews chapter 9, and that's where we're going to figure out, and, and Christ is talking to the Hebrews. God's talking to the Hebrews here, and he's saying, hey, as I told you in the New Testament, great, you got the law, you got the Old Testament, but this New Testament that I gave by my son, it's so far much better than that. 
So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16 and 17 says, For where a testament is, there must also be the death of the of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is no it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So as as Josh was touching on and as we're going to touch on today, and we're doing this in remembrance of Christ and his sacrifice, without Christ's sacrifice, we don't even have the New Testament. That Old Testament would still be in power. And we would be doomed a lot, right? A lot of the stuff that you read in the Old Testament, them not having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, them not having eternal security, their salvation, as you figured out when my dad did the whole dispensations thing, they had to work to keep that. That doesn't happen for us in this New Testament. We don't have to deal with that. It does a lot more for us, right? So as we dissect his word, realize that we're not just taking this cup just to remember it being shed, but that without his perfect blood, you and I would still be under that weak Old Testament. So as we remember this, remember it's not just that he did the sacrifice, it's all the stuff that comes with it. So the shedding of that blood provided some things for us, which are immensely important, uh, not just salvation, of course, but also more salvation being the greatest of them all, right? So we look at the Old Testament, as I said, we'll compare, and as God compares, let's just let his word define it, right? God dealing with sin and sacrifice always deals with blood. He doesn't sacrifice or deal with sin any other way in Scripture. There may be seven dispensations, as we learned a few weeks ago. There's only two testaments. There's the blood of goats and and lambs and any other type of animals, and there's the blood of Christ. That's the only two ways, right? So Hebrews chapter 9, it says in verse 18, "...whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book." And all the people saying, this blood is the testament of God, which hath enjoined unto you. You jump down to verse 22. It says, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood. There is no remission. But as you're about to see, that remission for them was only a covering and atonement for a year as I'm about to get into. For us, it's remission eternity. There is, it's eternally redeemed. We don't deal with that sin anymore. They, only, they dealt with it for a year. And by the day of the atonement, as we're about to get into in Leviticus 16, you had to deal with it again. You weren't eternally redeemed. So you have examples of this, and I like how Josh already mentioned this. You have Adam in Genesis 3. God's dealing with the first sin that Adam and Eve had committed, and they had to make, the first thing they noticed was that they were naked. So they make coats for them. An animal died. It had to be sacrificed. Its blood had to be shed for that sin. You get into Abraham in Genesis 22 as he talked, and then you get into Moses in Exodus chapter 12 as he talked as well, and then Leviticus chapter 16, verses 15 through 16, talking about that day of the atonement. So we go into Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. Of course, that Passover, which Christ is celebrating, which becomes after his celebration, it is the Lord's Supper, which we are taking. It says, your lamb shall be without blemish, and Josh already mentioned this, but I'm going to go a little bit further with it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. So you got a lamb without blemish. But you skip down to verse 13. It says, and the blood, the blood of this lamb, shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So there's spotless lamb. A lot like ours, because God uses as and like as the two most important words in the Bible for a reason. Their spotless lamb was the only thing to save them from God's wrath, yet it came with the condition that they had to sacrifice. 
there was a work involved in that. Did you do a work to get saved? No, the blood of Christ took you from that wrath of God, which would have been eternity spent in hell, separated from a holy God. No, we didn't have to work to get that at all. He did the work on the cross. You get to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. And atonement, of course, is a covering for their sins. The Old Testament didn't redeem them from their sins, but only covered their sins from one year. And yes, the Old Testament was the shedding of goats and lamb's blood, but it did not do enough to eternally redeem you from your sins. There was no justification to God. When God saw in the Old Testament, he looked down and saw sinful people. When God looks at us, as we're about to figure out in a couple minutes, he doesn't see sinful people anymore. He sees something else. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 8, I'm not going to read it, but it says back in Leviticus that they didn't have access to the Father. They didn't have access to the Father at all. There was no indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and you had nothing between you and God. There was a, there was a veil between you. There was a separation. There was a chasm between God and man. And I think we already know, we all know where we're going with this of there was only one man, one God, who is the same, that came, took God, took man, and shoved them together, right? So before we look at Christ as the New Testament gives us, I want us to realize that without the New Testament, by his death, all of what I just told you, all of the downfalls and the weakness of the Old Testament, you would still be under without his sacrifice. So as much as horrible as the sacrifice of Christ is, there's nothing great about Christ being butchered on a cross. What's great about it is when he resurrected three, three days later, and the power of that resurrection made that sacrifice actually work. Because without that resurrection, that sacrifice was null and void. Right? So you get to the New Testament, of course, comparing it to the Old Testament, and as I've already said, it's plain and simple, as he says here in 1 Corinthians 11, his blood is the New Testament. So, so I ask, as we get into our third, third point of where Christ is taking us, it's that blood. So what does that blood even give us? And I've been hinting at that multiple times over and over again of going, okay, God, where are you going with this? Where is that blood taking this? And like I said, as as and like are the two most important words in the Bible because God uses similarities. As the Old Testament hid them from God's wrath on the Passover, so does the New Testament hide us from his wrath. The Old Testament being the blood of lambs, the New Testament being the blood of the lamb, which is Christ. But there's a difference. This Testament does much more than just covering their sins. The New Testament in Christ's blood provides us with these blessings that I'm about to go into. Number one, of course, the one we're all going to know and go to first, which is eternal redemption and salvation. Unlike the Old Testament atonement of those blood and uh, uh, the blood of those lambs, their sins weren't covered, and neither are ours. Our sins are not covered. They're justified. Because covering is just sweeping it under the rug, but it's still there. When Christ looks at us, your sins aren't there. You're justified in the sight of God, right? They're not for a year, but it's for eternity. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, this is talking about Christ, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So when Christ dies on that cross, and for three days, his soul is out of his body, and that body's laying there in that, in that sepulcher. That, that mercy seat sitting up in heaven, he takes that blood from that ground, takes it up to the third heaven, puts it there, and it's there right now, and it's the only thing that gets you away 
for sin, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Realize that your sins are totally forgiven if you've called upon his name and his blood has washed you. Without his blood, you're still in debt to those, which means Romans 6.23 applies to you, that the wages of sin is death and eternal separation from God unless you allow his blood to wash over you. First Peter chapter, eight, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Josh touched a little bit on this, and it goes into the blood as well because the body and the blood are always tied together as you see here in 1 Corinthians. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers. He's literally telling you that Old Testament is those corruptible things. It's not good enough to redeem you. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, you were redeemed. So as that spotless lamb in Exodus, he is our spotless lamb that took his blood up to heaven to redeem us from those sins for eternity, past, present, and future. He took from Adam's sins until the last sin that will ever be committed before the new heaven and new earth, and he wipes all tears away and took them at the cross and paid for those sins with his blood. No, nothing, no item, no work, no money, no effort could ever save your soul out of the miry pit of clay except the blood of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated into the kingdom, into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins. Thank your salvation, of course, to the blood of Christ. We talk about a pardon. So you have an accuser every single day going up to the throne, right up to the throne and looking at God. And every time you sin, he's going, hey, you see what they did? You see that sin? You're going to keep loving him? You're going to keep letting him give it away from that? And when Christ took that blood up to the mercy seat, that's what gets you by. That's what. He looks over that and goes, no, my blood covers that. My blood applies there. You're not, getting, you're not going to accuse them of that sin because I've already covered that. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night, which he is doing right now. But verse 11, And they overcame him, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimonies, and they loved not their lives unto death. So without, without that blood of the lamb, you don't have a pardon. Somebody goes, Satan's going up to Christ with a crime you committed, which you absolutely did commit, and you don't have hope for a pardon if it's not for the blood being there. Like I said earlier, you don't have access to God as they did in the Old Testament. They, they never had access to God. We do now. So every single time you pray and you know for sure that Christ is listening to you, to you they didn't know that in the Old Testament. Spirit could come and go. But he's absolutely with us now. He's never leaving us, right? In dwelling of the Holy Spirit, and as Job talks about, as he desired that daysman betwixt us, right? Job didn't have that, but we do. We have that guy that's able to take that middle, uh, that middle part of partition and cut it down, as you see, as the veil was torn at his death, right? So now we can go directly to the Father by Christ Jesus. We have an advocate at the Father, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, but says... But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Verse 14 says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinance, for to make himself of twain one new man so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the Christ, having slain the enmity thereof. You have the absolute enmity. There is a chasm that you cannot 
ever get across without the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the only thing that makes the bridge. You don't have the bridge without it. You get to cleanliness. You, we do realize we are absolutely vile individuals. I mean, look, I look in the mirror every day, and there's not a day that I don't look and see myself as God sees us in the Old Testament of that spiritual leper, which is unclean, right? But God's able to see his, righteous, see his son's righteousness, right? God's desire was to wash us clean because of his love, and we're washed white by the blood, and we're no longer in our righteousness. Our righteousness is his filthy rags. His righteousness is clean and white. When God sees his children now after the cross, he no longer sees the wretched men that we are, but he sees his son's righteousness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, The blood of Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our own sins in his blood. Justification, I mentioned this earlier. No man was ever justified under the Old Testament. It goes a lot with that cleanliness thing. God didn't look at man and see his son's righteousness. He saw them as vile men, right? We, are, we weren't justified before the cross of Christ. We were all sinful men dealing with an absolute holy God. But that divide, that chasm is made obsolete by the blood. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, it says, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 and 10 says, Much more than being justified now by his blood, which, say, which we shall be saved from the wrath through him, for if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So as, as I get back to the cup, as I said I was going to return, we look and we go through all those benefits. Think about your daily walk with Christ and how much of those things you rely on. Because without it, you're still wretched and you'd still have to go do those works. And if we could lose our salvation, we would. But that eternal security and that blood of Christ, which pays every single sin debt you ever had, keeps you in his grace, keeps you in his salvation, right? So as we take of this cup, let us remember that his blood is the thing that allows us life. We don't have cleanliness without the, without the blood of Christ. We don't have eternal redemption, eternal security, eternal salvation without the blood of Christ. We don't have justification in the sight of, the, of God the Father, the holy, righteous, in judgment God. We don't have justification without his son's blood. We don't have salvation. We don't even have access to go to the Father. Without the blood of Christ, you're bound by the unrighteousness, filthiness of sin that is in you with absolutely no hope in this life nor the next in eternity. And you'll be separated from him without his blood. The blood frees us from all sin and bondage as we sung about earlier. And I get, and I get back into Psalms chapter 116, verse 12 and 13. It says, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits for me? All of those benefits that I just mentioned. What could I do to ever repay him? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will claim the blood of Christ, which is the only thing to save my soul, and call upon his name. For all his goodness towards us, the only thing we can do is take, our, take his blood as our salvation to save our souls. Let us take this cup in remembrance of the power of the blood and realize that without the blood, we have no hope. Let's commune with the Lord as, as we remember what he did for us. He... He loved us so much that he gave his life for us on the cross. He died so that we might live. And, and back to 1 Corinthians 11, as, 
as Paul is teaching us about the Lord's Supper. Here's what he continues saying, starting in verse 25. After the same manner also, he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. And I'd like to ask Steve to stand and thank the Lord for the symbol of the cup. Verse 25, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. In, in, in Matthew 26, when, when God instituted this Lord's Supper, verse 30. What it, it teaches us that when they ended that supper, what they actually did was they actually gathered together and they, 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 they sung a song together. It says when they had, they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And so that was the last thing that they did. And, and this church has traditionally done just that. And we've typically done it in a little bit different than we normally do to, to end a service. And so I intend to keep the, keep the tradition alive. And so what we've typically done is just made a circle around the sanctuary, gathered around together, held hands, and we and sang one last hymn together that, that Nathan will lead us. So if you would, stand to your feet. And would you make a circle together with us as we, as we dismiss this service and sing together?